Welcome to episode 37 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be talking about rejection, which is a lovely, pleasant, upbeat topic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we wanted to sort of demystify rejection Mm -hmm. for writers, uh, what exactly it means, Mm -hmm. why you might get rejected, um, you know, the reasons an editor might give, or... And also, what to do when you get a rejection. Mm -hmm. So, the thing about publishing is that you get rejected at pretty much every level of the process. Yep. Every single level, you will receive a rejection of some sort. And the rejection doesn't just stop with the author. It, (laughs) it, It just expands. The editor will get rejected. Um, you know, sales might get rejected, you know, bookstores might get rejected by consumers. Like there's just like levels of rejection at pretty much every part of this industry. So Mm -hmm. it's not just authors being put upon, (laughs) but I guess I just kind of want to start out a little bit about why things get rejected Mm -hmm. because and particularly I'm going to talk about fiction because that is what I know best. Obviously I do know nonfiction, but it is a little bit different. It's just a different beast. Nonfiction is just different altogether from fiction. Yeah. Every, everything about nonfiction and the process of publishing it is completely different. (laughs) The market's different. The readership is different. Everything about nonfiction is quite different. Um, and if you do nonfiction, well, it's actually quite lucrative. Um, and like consistently lucrative, I guess, like consistently, you know, earns money, but mm-hmm. fiction is a little bit, uh, feast or famine, but what to explain a little bit about rejection. So you go to a bookstore and you're looking for something to read and you just have a whole bunch of books in the bookstore. What makes you pick up a certain book to read it? You know, that's mm-hmm. it. So we're going to start at the query stage. So if you're a writer and you've sent out queries for your project to a whole bunch of different agents, the slush pile for an agent pretty much looks like going into the bookstore. Mm-hmm. They just have all these queries with kind of, you know, a short blurb. Because that's basically what's on the back copy of a book is basically what the content of a query is. And you just sort of sift through all of these blurbs and you kind of just pick one that catches your eye. And if you're in the bookstore and you just sort of pick up a book and you kind of thought like maybe read like the first chapter or two and then you kind of make a decision, all right, I think I like the writing, I like this, I like that, maybe I'll buy it and I'll take it home and I'll read it. It is very much, that process happens at every stage of publishing. Mm-hmm. It happens at the querying stage, it happens on the submission to the publishing house stage, it happens when sales are making their decisions to um, sell, pitch these books to their accounts. And then, of course, it happens uh, at the consumer stage when you are browsing the bookstore. So 
a lot of rejection is not personal. And I Mm-mm. think this is the heart of what I want to get to in this episode. It's basically how not to take rejection personally. <laughs> because it isn't. It it feels personal to the writer because obviously this is your book and you've invested all of this time and emotion and energy into it. And so, of course, your instinct is going to be to take it personally when someone else doesn't see the value in it that you see. But it isn't personal. You have to remember that all these other people don't have the same level of investment in your work at first glance. And as people take you on, when you get accepted, then they become invested in your work. But it's not a personal rejection because they're not, it's not a rejection of you or your worth or your talent or your ability. It's, it's business. Yeah. And it's also, it also goes to show exactly how subjective taste can be because mood too, I think also like depending Mm -hmm. on what mood you are when you browse the bookstore, Maybe a book that would have called to you at, you know, on on another day when you were Mm -hmm. in a different mood just isn't doing anything for you right now. So you're not going to pick it up and buy it. That happens to me all the time. (laughs) Yep. And often, like, I'm a mood reader. Like, I have Mm -hmm. to kind of be in the mood for something. Like, I'll kind of think to my head, to myself, like, oh, I'm in the mood for... Uh, something lighthearted, or I'm in the mood for, you know, a dark fantasy, or I'm in the mood for uh, something a little bit more intellectual or philosophical. I get into moods, and uh, you can't quite do that in, in the business side of things. But when agents cultivate their taste, that's kind of what it is. These are mm-hmm. types of books that they reliably know works for them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what taste is, essentially, right? your reading taste is cultivated by, you know, you just gravitate towards different types of books, different types of stories, different tropes work for you, different tropes don't work for you. Um, and the now, the difference between the consumer choosing a book to read and an agent choosing a client manuscript to take on is when you're an agent, you basically, every book you're reading, you have to ask yourself, is there someone I can recommend this to? Mm-hmm. Because if it's a manuscript that you like and you ha- has a different, you know, has a cool idea, interesting premise, interesting characters, but you just don't know who you would recommend that book to, then it's depending. You know, you can make that call on your own whether or not you want to go out and find people who might, or try and convince people that you know this is something that's worth taking a chance on. Or a lot of times, because agents are very busy, they just may not have the time or energy to take it on. And that's really it. You have to acquire, you have to start representing clients with this idea of like, oh, I know this person would probably love to read this book. You kind of have to have that always at the back of your mind. And a good agent will have cultivated these, and we talked about this in our last week's episode about agents going out to lunches with editors and sort Uh of talking to them and seeing what their tastes are. Good agents have those networks and lists and ideas of editors' tastes kind of 
always in the back of their head so they can kind of when they look at things and like oh I know so and so will probably really like this so and so will probably really like this so that's what they're going to be looking for when they're looking to represent someone because when you're going through your slush pile anything that catches your fancy why not why not read it right mm-hmm. why not give it a shot so so the the blanket rejection you get at just the query stage is the least personal thing of all it's mm-hmm. just this this just doesn't sound like it's for me just mm-hmm. doesn't sound like it's for me just doesn't sound like it's for me and there are a lot of agents out there there are a lot of potential readers out there so i would not take that first stage of rejection personally at all yeah and so then you're at the stage now where you're you're starting to get requests from agents uh, for your query like something about the premise the hook or whatever is is interesting to them this is the point where it starts to get a bit more subjective. I mean, the, every stage, as I said before, is subjective. But sometimes you connect with the voice, and sometimes mm-hmm. you don't. Can we talk about the, the hamster of personal aesthetic? Yes. Can we tell people <laughs> what that is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kelly, you should tell this story. <laughs> so, so listeners of the podcast will know that JJ and I have known each other for many, many years, and that we initially met back in a critique group when we were both living in New York City before either one of us lived in publishing. Uh, We were in a critique group with two other women and we would get together weekly and eat a lot of cheese and drink a lot of wine and uh, (laughs) critique one another's writing and gossip. And um, as a result of that, you know, we were very young and we were really focused on craft and on learning and we were having a discussion where the the subject came up of the idea that you could recognize something as objectively good, fine, well crafted. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there was there was nothing wrong or faulty about the craft or the storytelling or the writing or anything. It was all fine. It was all successful. It all worked. And yet it didn't hit that like inner sweet spot for whatever mm-hmm. reason we didn't connect with it. And so as we were talking about this phenomenon of, of engaging with a piece of fiction that is fine, but doesn't personally do it for us. We came up with this character of the hamster of personal aesthetic <laughs> who just <laughs> embodied our own personal taste. He was like the gatekeeper of our taste and everybody has their own hamster of personal aesthetic who sits (laughs) there and cultivates for you whether or not something is, is going to hit your personal sweet spot. And JJ actually went and illustrated a little hamster (laughs) for each of us to keep with us. And I still have my illustration and it's actually come with me, um, from job to job throughout publishing. And (laughs) now it's sitting right now at my own own um, personal desk at home on the wall. And I look at it to remind myself that the hamster of personal aesthetic, although kind of a comical, cute, whimsical little um, avatar, is a real concept. There is a real true phenomenon wherein everything can be solidly crafted and well done and just not for you. Yes. I mean, think about all the critically acclaimed books out there or just books that have 
hype or popularity or whatever it is, and it just doesn't do anything for you, I'm sure everyone has books like that. And that's exactly what the hamster personal aesthetic is. Your hamster, it just doesn't work for your hamster. Yeah, your hamster doesn't want it. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and it's so, not personal. The yes. hamster isn't mean. The hamster is not bitchy. The hamster is just there just to like, do a job. Meh, 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 meh. So, you know, the rejections that you get at this stage, I, depending on the sort of rejections that you are getting, um, often you'll kind of get a very blanket just didn't connect and that's exactly what that means like you know the premise is interesting and it could just very well be that there's nothing wrong with your writing and it's all good like your sentences your craft level that's good your characterization's fine like all of that is good but it just didn't hit with them then that's just what it's going to be they're just going to say i'm sorry it doesn't work for me and there's not really any more criticism or critique that an agent can offer you if they just don't connect on that level. So that's what that rejection is. So often if you are seeing those kind of blanket rejections, even after an agent has requested your partial or full, that's just that. They just didn't connect to the work. And that is literally what that means. I just mm -hmm. didn't connect. It has nothing to do with your ability to write. It just means it's just not for me. And then there's the other sorts of rejections that you might see that are, oh, I like this, but, and then they give you more concrete criticism, then that's something you want to pay attention to. There's two things you want to pay attention to when you get rejections with actual criticism in them. If you are seeing a common pattern, like all of the rejections you're getting are like, you know, the ending is kind of bleak and it doesn't work then that's probably something you should pay attention to, pay attention to and maybe rethink and re revise and rewrite rewrite but if your critiques are kind of all over the place you know like oh i really loved the main character but i hated the love interest and then someone else says oh i really loved your love interest but really didn't like your main character Again, that is their hamster of personal aesthetic. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you're getting kind of conflicting feedback about that way, just keep trucking on. Just keep trying. You're going to find somebody who connects with your work on a personal level. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the agent side of things. We can talk right. about submission a little bit in this particular episode. But I, I actually think submission should probably be reserved for its own separate mm -hmm. episode because there's a lot of things that go into business decisions as to why you may turn a piece of work down. Yeah. Yeah. And we've gone over a few of those before, but I agree that submission could probably be its own episode. I think on the editorial side of things, you, it's the same as with the agent, you know, they each editor has their own hamster and their own taste that they're going to have to look at. And then of course there is the, business decisions we've talked about in our last, you know, episode about meetings and things like that, you've got to convince a lot of other people to come mm -hmm. along with you and sign off of it. And so even if an editor likes something personally, it, it might not get picked up as a result of, you know, death by committee. And also something I think too about the editorial rejections are that not only is the editor trying to find something that 
they personally connect with that makes sound business sense that they can get the rest of their team on board with, but also something that fits the brand identity of their Mm -hmm. imprint. Mm -hmm. Imprints really do have brand identities. And if you look at a lot of books put out by the same imprint, they'll tend to have similar feels to them. Um, And so that's another thing that an editor has to consider is I might like this book. Everybody else might like this book, but is, is this imprint the right home for this book? Yes. For example, say you work at a mystery imprint and a mystery, your mystery, like a mystery thriller imprint and your mystery thriller imprint tends to do a lot of the kind of dark, psychologically gritty books. Um, and then you get a cozy in and even though it's technically a mystery, it doesn't quite fit in with the, uh, with the aesthetic of the rest of the books being published by your imprint then it's probably not a good fit. And the the reasons it's not a good fit isn't necessarily just because it doesn't fit into the overall aesthetic. It's that your marketing department, your publicity department, they know how to pitch thrillers that are dark, you know, psychological mm. thrillers. They know how to pitch those. They know how to package those. They know how to market those. They know exactly what kind of readership likes those. And then they get a cozy mystery And then they're just sort of like, well, they almost have to start from scratch because even Mm -hmm. though Cozy Mystery is under the mystery thriller umbrella, it's still a different segment of that readership that will gravitate toward those types of books. So there's a lot more factors when you're on the acquisition side in publishing that go into whether or not you can acquire a book. So I think maybe we should talk about that next time. Maybe that will be our, our next episode. Um, mm-hmm. So, but back to the rejections at the agenting side of things. So you've been querying for a long time and you're kind of getting the same response from everybody. You know, you're kind of getting the same response like, thanks, loved it or not. We, this is an interesting idea. It just doesn't do it for me. And you've been getting that response from pretty much everyone across the board. Now it's time to review whether or not it's time to put the book aside. Mm -hmm. This is going to be tricky for, and, and the line may be different for everyone. That, the line where you decide, okay, maybe it's time to put this novel novel aside for now. That line is going to be different for everybody. Um, uh, as we, as most of the universal advice goes, while you're querying, while you're on submission, just write the next thing. Don't think about what's currently out there. Just continue to write because the only way forward is through, really. You just have to keep going. But... When do you think is the right time to set something aside? I think that oh, I think that's so hard to determine because I think everything that you just said is true that it can vary so much. I think that you have to put it aside when, 
I'm trying to think of the right word. I was going to say when you start to get depressed, but, <laughs> but, but that could be really soon. I know, for a I lot know, of which is which is why I want to I want to qualify that a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's going to be hard, and rejections are going to be hard. And if you get a string of rejections in a row, which is very likely going to happen, then that's going to be hard, and you know, you might knock a glass back and drown your sorrows a little bit. Um, I think. There comes a time, though, and I think you just have to be willing to look at this and acknowledge this, that just like with anything in your life, you just you just need to set it down for a, a little while when it becomes mm-hmm. too heavy. And that doesn't mean that you can never query it again. It doesn't mean, you know, that it's that that's that nothing's ever going to happen. But it means that when when it's becoming really heavy, when you feel like you're being burdened by it, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Emotionally burdened by it. Put it aside and either work on something completely different or take a break from writing altogether. You know, we've, it's, it's a cliche in writing and in publishing that, you know, put it away and don't look at it. And then when you come back to it with a fresh set of eyes, it makes such a difference. That's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's really quite true that having some of that emotional distance can help you. So maybe you'll put it away and you'll come back to it and you'll see some things click into place and you'll revise it a little bit and you'll send it out again. Maybe you'll put it away for a little bit. And when you pull it out again, you'll take a look and you'll say, you know what? This manuscript isn't ready. This isn't the right one. And you'll feel free to work on something else. Because I can also imagine that writing a novel and putting that time into it and querying it and having it go nowhere, I can imagine feeling chained to that. Feeling like you owe this manuscript and you owe yourself to push this through and get it published. And, you know, sometimes if you can separate yourself from it and come back to it and just realize it's not ready, that can be a release. It can free you up and give you permission to work on something else, to step Mm -hmm. away from this project, to know that this isn't the right project and to move on to something else where you don't feel so chained to this one work in progress anymore. Yeah. When you, part of the, putting the manuscript aside and looking at it with fresh eyes, it is really absolutely true that you will see things about your manuscript you just didn't notice before. Things that you loved about it, scenes that you thought were great, maybe after some distance and some time are not as great as you might have thought. Maybe, it, you know, the tension is lacking. Uh, maybe in the course of writing and revising it, you just got a little bit too attached to things as they were. And so you're a little bit unwilling to let go of them in their current state, even though it's not working. Like a lot of those things come with distance and with time. So, you know, also the other thing is if you come down to sheer numbers, I would say When you draw up the list of agents to query, I would say query broadly and query in rounds because you kind of want to query in rounds to the point where like, you know, there's like the agents that you absolutely know you want to work with. And there's like maybe 25 to 50 in that first round. 
And then kind of if none of them say yes, then there's kind of your next round. This is often the way agents, you know, make submission lists for their clients. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd go in rounds. They have rounds of editors, kind of the first tier in these houses that they know, that they think will be a best fit, best match, probably will get the best deal, the best offer, whatever. You kind of want to look at agents the same way. You want to cultivate your agent list and kind of be like, well, this person reps a lot of the books that I love to read. They've, they seem to be with a good agency or they've done pretty good deals with their client for their clients, all that sort of stuff. I would say, and most agents probably will have two or three rounds that they send manuscripts on submission. And I would say, limit yourself to about two or three rounds as well of agents because you know, like there are stories of people who sell books to small pub and small presses, um, who don't have very big lists, and they, you know, and the, despite the the small press's best intentions, the book just doesn't do well, or you know, kind of sputters in the marketplace, and it's sort of killed the book. Going with an untested, untried agent can be a similar gamble because sometimes, sometimes a small press can do really well by a by a book, but others not so much, and it can be kind of disastrous. It is a little bit the same. So, you know, even though there are bazillion agents out there, and there are, I feel like there are more every <laughs> single day. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that even though, and because younger agents in the business are hungry and it's always a good thing to be hungry. You know, you uh -huh. want, because a hungrier agent will take the time to work with their client editorially to really polish it up because they know they have something to prove. So they're going to spend the most love and time and care on their first clients. But on the flip side of that, depending on the agency they're with, you know, if they're with a reputable agency, if they're just sort of kind of freelancing as an agent for an agency, it's just kind of, you you have to be, you have to use your best judgment here. And so let's say everyone in your first and second tier of agents has said no to this particular project and it all kind of comes down to, it's not really for me. Don't just go with anybody. You know, be extremely discerning about who you choose to query, you know, because you always want to give younger agents a chance, but it's kind of a double-edged sword for them because they don't have name recognition amongst the big five yet. Um, and I will admit it, like as an editor, if I got in a manuscript from somebody from an agency that I've never heard of, and if I look at their sales on publisher marketplace, Publishers Marketplace and I see that they haven't really made that many sales, then I'm going liable to be less receptive to this particular agent's manuscript. Now, of course, the work has to speak for itself. If I love it, then it doesn't really matter who reps it. Um, but that's often what happens with these kind of like smaller, lesser known agents is that, you know, they're books may kind of sit languished unread on a publisher's submission pile because they don't quite have the name recognition to have it kind of made a priority and moved to the top. So 
I would say kind of divide your agent lists into rounds. And when you've gone through the rounds and no one has said yes, I think it's time to put that manuscript to bed. And it could just simply be that the timing is not right, because as we all know, a couple years ago, we had the huge influx of dystopian. And for and it still is pretty much impossible to sell a dystopian novel right now. We've Everyone has fatigue. Uh, but on the other hand, I think paranormal is coming back mm-hmm. because if... You know, because like when post Twilight, there was a huge paranormal boom, um, and and then it kind of bust. There's a huge mm-hmm. boom, and then a huge bust, and then you couldn't touch paranormal with a five foot pole, like you ten foot pole. You're just like, no, it's just it's too much. But now I think there's been enough time has passed mm-hmm. that when you see a paranormal, you're like, oh, okay, that's fine. So it could just be a matter of timing. You know, if if everyone is like, oh, I can't sell this, it's too like another book that's published right now, then maybe it's just not time and you wait for the, the cycle to turn in publishing and you can query that again or you can submit that again and that that's fine. So there's the timing aspect of it. And then this is going to be harder and this is going to sound really harsh and cold, but sometimes it just, there's nothing special about your book. Yeah. And I hate to say it that way, but it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. In publishing, because you see so many books, you see so many projects, they all start to acquire a gloss of sameness. Sameness in terms of quality, in terms of level of writing, in terms of concept and execution. So, your book may be perfectly competent. You know, it's got great characters, good writing, good pace, good plot. But it just doesn't stand out in any sort of remarkable way. And also, standing out in a bad way can also work. Yeah... It's better to be memorable than it is to just be good. And that's horrible when I say it that way. But publishing is not a meritocracy. Business is not a meritocracy. Yeah. So there is that to consider. And that's kind of when people talk about the high concept idea. The X meets Y, you know, mm-hmm. high concept idea. And... Part of that is because the X meets Y construct, it's an easy, quick idea for people to get their minds around. Quick to, you know, be able to grab onto very quickly. Um, So if you don't really have a high concept book and it's kind of quiet, but, you know, it's well written and all that sort of stuff, you may be seeing a lot of rejections because it's just not memorable. (laughs) I know, I, I know, I, now I'm revealing myself for being the cold-hearted person that I am, but I, I think, I think every, every writer needs to have this sort of come-to-Jesus moment about their own work. And it doesn't mean that the next project you write won't be memorable. It just means that this particular project 
isn't for some reason or another. You know, I, the book I was writing before I wrote Winter Song just wasn't working. And I knew it wasn't working. It was perfectly fine. Like it had, you know, characters and the writing was fine, but it just wasn't alive. It, there was nothing about it that stood out. There was nothing, even though it was, quote, high concept, because it was a retelling of the magic flute, it just wasn't breathing on the page. And I knew that, and therefore I put that book aside. And now I, now that I've stepped away from it, I'm like, well, I'm not really all that interested in going back to rewriting it. But I, I needed, I needed that. I needed to take that step back and be like, okay, there's actually nothing really special about this. So I'm going to put that aside and work on my next project. And it will be easier for some of you guys to do this than others. But you really should not tie yourself to one manuscript forever. To me, that there's nothing sadder than somebody who has been on the rounds querying the same project for like five, six years and not going anywhere. It's time to put that to bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time to move on. Because clearly the world doesn't want it right now. It may not ever want it either. So you know mm -hmm. what? Time to put it aside and write something else that you love, that catches your heart and interest, and that will catch other people's hearts and interests. And I think that's the hardest part about publishing to get your... to reconcile, really, because publishing is a business, as we said. Publishing and business are not meritocracies. Writing is an art, and writing is what you put a lot of your emotion and creativity and heart into, but... Art and business, there's, it's an age-old conflict, and it's existed forever. And once you make the transition from writing for yourself to trying to sell your work, you must necessarily adopt a different mindset. So, how's that for extremely discouraging advice? <laughs> I don't think it is, though. I think it, I think it is encouraging. I think people need to hear that. I think people need to hear that... It's okay if your book is rejected and it's okay to abandon that book and write another one. And, you know, it's all fine. Every writer that you talk to has tons of trunked manuscripts that didn't go anywhere, has tons of rejection letters, you know. Nobody, nobody gets a straight shot all the way through. There's always something along the way. And, you know, I think we get so maybe caught up in seeing all the sort of Cinderella stories that take place, like, oh, this is the first book, and it got, like, a seven-figure deal, and it was a bestseller overnight. That's, like, a one-in-one-million chance. That mm -hmm. never happens. Pretty much put that hope aside. That will not happen. It's like winning the lotto. You might. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is that chance. It exists, but... That's just not the way publishing really works. And for the vast majority of us, 99.9999% of us, it's going to be steady, just, you know, steadily writing, just keeping on, you know, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And for many writers, what we thought was an overnight success for them was actually years and years and years of work. If we think about John Green, for example, John Green's first three books were mid-list. And then The Fault in Our Stars happened, and boom, huge bestseller. Mm -hmm. 
or Suzanne Collins. Suzanne Collins wrote a middle grade, I believe it's a trilogy, might be more Mm -hmm. books, Gregor the Overlander. And they're quite good, uh, very dark. Um, They're quite good, and I think, but no one really heard of them. And then she wrote The Hunger Games, and boom. Mm-hmm. Looked like an overnight success, but it's actually years upon years of working and writing and, you know, getting a slightly bigger deal, maybe a slightly bigger deal and slightly bigger deal, and then that success has hit them. So don't get discouraged if your first deal is not what you hope it to be, or if, you know, your first book isn't what you hope it to be. You know, we interviewed Beth Ravis on this podcast, and she mm-hmm. wrote a book. For, she wrote a book a year for 10 years before she wrote Across the Universe, and that's the one that got her agent and landed her on the New York Times bestseller list. Again, this looks like an overnight success. Mm-hmm. Beth had been working on her craft for 10 years before that. She wrote 10 other books before that. So, you know, don't get discouraged. It may not be the time for this particular project, if ever, but just keep working and keep improving, and hopefully someday that dream of becoming a published writer will be a reality for you. Mm-hmm. So, that wasn't so discouraging, now, was it? <laughs> no! <laughs> you will probably find, and Kelly can, I'm sure, tell you, I'm not the person you go to if you want, like, coddling no. feelings. Mm-mm. <laughs> I don't work that way. <laughs> Which is actually really great. <laughs> As we'll talk about later in one of our future segments. So I think I think that's all I really have to say about rejection. I don't know. What about you, Kelly? No, I think that's it. I think I think that's just about everything. Don't take it personally and and use it to keep fueling the fire and keep doing what you got to do because you know you you can't you can't let that stop you if what you really want to do is write a book and have a book published then you can't be defeated by rejections because it's part of the process yeah you will that is the one certainty in publishing you will get rejected Mm -hmm. the only certainty perhaps in publishing (laughs) (laughs) you will get rejected All right, then. So about our next segments. So what have you been reading? Nothing. I'm back in my reading slump. Hmm. (laughs) I, well, well, I guess that's not entirely true. So I I had pulled myself out of my slump by reading the ever-reliable Maria V. Snyder. And then I'd started a couple of other books that I got from the library and didn't finish any of them. They just weren't doing it for me. Wasn't in the right mood. So I kind of cast around for something. And then one night I couldn't sleep and my husband was already asleep. And so I just needed something to do. And the light from my phone will wake him up, but the light from my Kindle won't. Hmm. So I was on my Kindle and just looking through like my existing library of ebooks that I own and trying to find something that didn't sound horrible. And I started reading The Mists of Avalon again. So <laughs> I'm about halfway through that one, but I'm just reading it. I'm 
like to have something to read. It's not even like a reread that I'm thoroughly enjoying right now because I've reread this book a lot and I really like this book. But right now it's just like I needed to put words in front of my face. So I, yeah. <laughs> I put that book there. So I'm not really reading anything right now. What about you? I'm still reading My Lady Jane and A Darker Shade of Magic. So nothing new from last week. And, of course, still my Beethoven biography. I am halfway through his life now. Oh. <laughs> um, it is, I mean, it's really interesting and I really do like it. But the person who wrote it is also a musician. He's also a composer. So he gets very technical about the music that Beethoven writes, which I think I love and it's great. Um, and I want more of that and less of the kind of narrative of his life. Because I already know the narrative of his life. Most people already know the narrative. Well, not most, but people who know music history already know the narrative of his life. So I'm like, I want the details around Beethoven's life. I don't really need his personal stories or, or anything like that. I just, I just mm-hmm. like, I want the musical analysis and I want the nitty gritty details of what life was like in this time period. I also have two nonfiction books that I have acquired for research as well. One is just called Vienna 1814. So it's kind of just sort of an overview of that time period. And the other one is, I cannot remember the title and it's going to bother me. So let me see if I can find it on my Goodreads. It is Sounds and Sweet Airs, the Forgotten Music, Women of Classical Music. So it's kind of um, portraits of these uh, women composers of the past. So again, this is all research for book two. So nothing really for fun. Although I did get a galley of The Graces by Laura Eve, um, Mm -hmm. which I am looking forward to once I am no longer reading this Beethoven biography. Someday. Someday. It's like The Witches, you guys, because that, that took me about like three months to read as well, because it's just big and dense. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe to get out of your rut this time, maybe just try a different format as opposed yeah. to just reading. Maybe find a print book, borrow mm-hmm. a print book from the library, yeah. or read an audiobook. I should do that. I should do that. Because I I found that sometimes, and because for a long time I associated reading like an e-reader, using an e-reader with work reading, because that was kind of the only way I read my manuscripts for work, that I, anything I read for fun, I had to read in print. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, if I was going to read it on my e-reader, I was just going to associate it with work. Right. And then like <laughs> mentally, I just couldn't do it. I've, I've since like started to divorce that, but... I think maybe read, just pick up a book, like a physical book. You may find yourself being able to read that just because it's different format. So, who knows? Yeah. All right. What are we working on? I am working on a thing. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um, so... JJ was talking earlier about how she is not so much with the coddling. And, um, of course, I am fortunate enough to have her as my critique partner. And everybody who doesn't have her as their own personal critique partner. I, there are a few of us out there in the world, but unfortunately, the few is not the many. And for the rest of you, I do feel sorry for you because you are missing out. Um, 
There is a YA novel, I've talked about it on here before, that I have had in my head for years, and I've kind of worked on it a little bit here and there, and it's just not really happening for me because I'm not actually sitting down to write it, I guess, is more accurate. I'm not writing it. I shouldn't say it's not happening for me as if there's some like nebulous mystical reason <laughs> as to why it's not occurring. It's because I'm not sitting down in the chair in front of the keyboard and typing the words, which is what you have to do when you want to write a book. Uh, and I'm not doing that thing. And so I had talked last week on the podcast about how my friend Chris and I were had started doing this thing where we were just going to write um, something once a week and just send it to each other, not for any critical purposes, but just to start getting in the habit of writing again. And so this past week, we did that for the first time. We turned in our first writing on Monday. He chose the prompt. He chose the prompt, witches. That was the prompt in its entirety, was just the word witches. (laughs) So I wrote about 500 words on witches. I wrote a little weird story and sent that over to him. But it was the first time I'd written anything substantial. Like I, 500 words doesn't sound super substantial, but it, it was the first time I'd sat down and thought of a little scene or anything and wrote it down in so long, possibly since NaNoWriMo, that it just was like, the kickstart that I needed to be like, okay, I have to start working on this young adult project because I really do want to write this book. I really, really do. And I need to make it happen. And so I started talking to you, JJ, about it again and, you know, dredging up all of our previous conversations because JJ has been hearing me talk about this book for years and years and years and years. And JJ basically was just, I'm giving you homework now. (laughs) And you're going to have homework assignments and you're going to turn them into me. And if you don't, I will be displeased. And so, <laughs> so now I'm essentially tasked with writing roughly a chapter a week, um, more or less, depending mm-hmm. on what, what the needs of the story are at the time. So it's terrifying, really super scary, but I have begun um, so we'll see what happens. And I really need to let go of trying to make it quote unquote good right now. I just really need to get it on the page. And we, you and I have talked a lot recently about the kind of the structural problems, because the problem was that I had all these like bits and pieces and characters and things, but I didn't really have like an actual plot that made sense or that was engaging in any shape or form. So we've kind of got a rough plot hammered out. And I say we because literally JJ sits there on Gchat and she just asks me leading questions. And then as soon as I answer that question, she asks me another one. And then she asks me another one. And then I get really irritated because I don't know the answers. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, I I cannot stress enough how um, much she is basically, like, there is no carrot dangling. There's just the whip. (laughs) It's me just, like, dragging Kelly forward, being like, this is the finish line. Yeah. You're coming, like, you're you're finishing you're, it now. I know, you're essentially like, this is how you have to write a book. Because it, it is. In order to write a book, you have to sit down and write it. And I think I want to write a book without having to sit down and write it. I mean, don't we I, all? I want to skip that part. and um, <laughs> <laughs> But I've been skipping that part for like five years and I still don't have a book. So it's not really working for me. 
Um, so yeah, so I've started doing the actual writing of that, which I will have to turn into you on Monday. Today is mm-hmm. Wednesday as we record this. So mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes. I think it comes down sometimes for me, I've not really ever had a problem doing something that I've set my mind out to doing, but that's also because as a Ravenclaw, I don't need <laughs> external validation for the work I do. I don't care. If people see it or don't, I don't care if I get a good grade. I mean, I care if I get a good grade, I suppose. But ultimately, the good grade, I know I will get a good grade, so the grade doesn't matter. (laughs) But I don't need a teacher. I don't need that sort of, I don't need to live up to that. But Mm -hmm. you need external (laughs) validation. I do in every aspect of my life. It's not a bad thing, I think. Having a homework assignment is basically like, look, I'm going to tell you this is what you need to do. And giving you, having someone else give you that task gives you something to work towards. Therefore, you don't have to get over the fear. You don't have to necessarily get over the fear of getting yourself to work. Mm -hmm. Because so much of, I think, a lot of people who are externally validated, and like I said, it's not a bad thing. It's just the way people get motivated. Some people don't need that, and some people do. If you are externally validated and are trying to internally motivate yourself, the you will self-sabotage over and over again. You will just uh-huh. be like, oh, well, I didn't do it, so I was never going to do it, so it's fine. So having yourself be accountable to someone else will motivate you, and that is perfectly fine. My mother is externally validated. She needs uh-huh. that aspect of competition with someone else. I've never cared. And, but that's just been me, but other people do my mom, my brother. And, and for us, you know, particularly in fitness, my mother likes to compete with me. I hate competing with my mother because she's so competitive, but like (laughs) we're, we're Fitbit friends, my mom and I. And, um, so she likes to try and get herself motivated that way because she can see what I'm doing and she's like, okay, fine. Then I'm going to match her. So I don't care. If if she's leading, I don't care. If I'm leading, I don't care. It doesn't actually matter to me, but it does to her, and I'm perfectly fine letting her use me in that way. And I'm perfectly happy to help you write your book this way if this is what you need. Because I think structure, external structure, is what helps you more than internal inspiration when it comes to writing a book. Because internal inspiration is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lie for everyone. I don't care. If someone says, oh no, this, this, the story came to me in a dream and I wrote it in like five days. Lies. All lies. I don't care. You may have physically written your book in five days, but that internal inspiration is, is a lie. It's not enough to write a book. Because that person who wrote said book in five days will go, is probably going to have to spend six months fixing what they wrote in five days. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the time is the same. The time you put into the work is going to be the same. It's just how you get there. So for me, I have to muddle my way through it. But I think you are just the kind of person who needs a very strict, regimented, like... You know, in in school when they're like, read three chapters and then write, answer these five questions and turn this in on Thursday. You know, like that. It works for a lot of people. 
I was the kind of person who took the entire week's homework, did it all on Monday, and then just completely did nothing the rest of the mm-hmm. week. So, <laughs> that, was, that was me. Um, so, that's just people, the way people work, and it's different for everybody. So, Well, as far as what I'm working on, you guys probably already know the answer to that. <laughs> Are you working on book two? Um, <laughs> yes, um, especially now that I have officially finished First Pass Pages. Um, those went in, those are getting overnighted to my editor today, and it, I ended up with a hundred pages, mind you, my book is about 140, it's about 448 pages long. I really regret writing a long book, especially when you have to read the whole thing aloud. Um, but I ended up with about a hundred pages or so that needed corrections. This is why... Reading aloud is a good idea because I don't think I would have seen them if I had just sat down and read it closely. Reading them aloud, I realized, oh, this was repeated. Oh, I dropped a word here. Oh, I apparently really love the word languid. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do advocate for that. I really wish I had also given myself a little bit more time than I had because I was up till two in the morning pacing my office reading the last couple of chapters aloud. Um, but they are done. They are over. As far as winter song stuff goes, I don't think I really need to do any more work on it now. I think now it, it's, it's, it's next week. Wow. Um, I know. I'm excited. I get my galleys next week, and from here on out for winter song, I think it will mostly be a speed promotion. So, like, actual substantive work on this book... This part of it is now over for me, and it could not happen a moment too soon, because I was starting to approach the point where I hated every single word that I wrote. So <laughs> I think it's a nice time to put it to bed, and I'm glad now to kind of leave it and move move ahead with book two and promoting book one. So that's me. Nice. Any off-menu recommendations? Um, Yeah. Actually, so I watched Heather's the musical this weekend. Which you watched I it actually, or you listened to it? I watched it and listened to it. I have the the musical with me. Oh, okay. okay. Um, it is quite quite funny. I was somewhat surprised because I don't actually like the movie it's based on mm-hmm. Heather's, um, which is a cult classic from the eighties, and I just never really really cared for it but the musical is hilarious um in the kind of legally blonde sort of way um very very funny and there there's a song in there called i love my dead gay son (laughs) and suddenly a whole bunch of tumblr memes make sense (laughs) i was like where is this coming from oh okay it's from heathers now now i get it um, so I do highly recommend that, and um, also I started playing a video game, which I have forced myself to stop because I need to write book two. <laughs> but um, the game is called Oxenfree, and because I enjoyed Life is Strange so much, which, by the way, we need to talk about because <gasps> I finished it a long time ago, and like what? I just never got around to talking to you about it. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up this podcast so that we can talk about that. I'm just kidding. Take your time. Oh, no. I mean, it's 
pretty similar, actually, not similar in terms of, but it's a it's a story based, character based video game, basically. So you play as Alex, and she goes to Edwards Island, which is kind of this old abandoned military base, kind of in the Pacific Northwest. She goes with a group of her friends, and they're kind of possibly slightly supernatural things going on on the island where you're not sure entirely what it is but the vast majority of this game is basically interactions that you have with other characters in this game so you have you know you're basically just having conversations with all the other characters and you know your dialogue options come up and there's like generally three and you have to pick one and you actually have to pick it pretty quickly because if you do don't pick it in time, the game will choose an option for you and move ahead. So the speed of the conversation is very naturalistic and you kind of can't think about it too hard. You just have to sort of respond and answer to what's going on. Um, it, it's, the artwork is beautiful. Um, you, you know me, I kind of like slightly spooky things. And I really can't play it because I know I'll probably just play it to the detriment of actually writing book two. <laughs> so um, that will be my reward. When I finish a draft, I can go ahead and finish Oxenfree. But it's quite beautiful, and I do recommend it. Wow. If you liked Life is Strange. If if that sort of story-based uh-huh. game gameplay is something that works for you, I think it's probably going to be up your alley. I will definitely add it to my list. That one and I, the other one I heard about is Firewatch, which is also a similar... Not similar in the conversation aspect, but similar in the story being very driven by you and what you do. So I have a new game to add to my list. I'm excited. Yep. So by you, what do you have off many recommendations? Did I talk about The 100 last week? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I did. Okay. If I talked about The 100 already and how obsessed I was with The 100 and how I don't know what to do because I can't find season three anywhere to watch it. Um, in that case, I don't know that I have anything new that's off menu. Well, you did get me into Disney Prince, Disney princess Deathmatch. I did, but I told you about that last week. So if anyone is out there still in need of a a podcast, you should check that one out. And there is, you definitely should check it out because there is a spreadsheet too, where you can put in your correct opinions. (laughs) Yeah, there was a little bit of pushback on the inconsistent scoring um, on Twitter. And so um, some people on Twitter created a spreadsheet and you too can go add your own scores. Um, I used to have the lowest score on the spreadsheet. I had scored Snow White a 10.5 out of, what's the possible, 5 to 30? 30. 30? Yeah, 10.5 yeah. out of 30 is what I'd scored Snow White. And it was for a very long time the lowest score that any princess had been awarded by any person on the spreadsheet. That. And I got a lot of <laughs> shit for it on Twitter. <laughs> but then I introduced JJ this morning to the spreadsheet and she filled in her uh, scores and she beat me. She gave uh, Aurora a nine, <laughs> which is currently yeah. the lowest score on there. And it's scored according to a certain um, categories and things like that. So it's not, you know, supposedly there's rules that you're following, but it's, it's pretty fun. It's pretty entertaining. If you like Disney, if you grew up on those Disney movies, um, I think it's pretty good. 
So yeah, I love that podcast. Yeah, I love listening to it because I have very strong opinions about the Disney Renaissance mm-hmm. <laughs> and just all classic Disney. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Disney princess film. Um, I do have very, very strong opinions. And just because I don't necessarily like a princess doesn't mean that I dislike the movie itself. Like, mm-hmm. Aurora, I think, is kind of useless because she spends like half the movie unconscious. So, as a princess, she's not that great. But the actual film around Beauty and the Beast, uh, not Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, is quite beautiful. Right. And there's a lot of work and artistry that went into, into that film. So, I actually like it on an artistic level. I just don't think the princess is worth anything. So, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess that's it for us then. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, All right. next week we are going to be on hiatus since I will be in New York because I'm going to see Hamilton. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> you are going to be in the same room as David Diggs. Yeah! I can't believe I'm it. A little, I'm, I'm a little bit upset because um, I'm going to see it after Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. leave. So mm. unfortunately I will not be able to see them. I'm sure whoever is going to be Aaron Burr will be great. I am also heard really wonderful things about Javier Munoz, who was mm-hmm. the alternate Hamilton. So I'm not particularly upset. I'm a little upset about Leslie because I love him and his voice, which is just beautiful and like silk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really glad because David Diggs and Renee Elise Goldberry have renewed their contracts. So I get to see them. So I'm super, I'm super stoked about that. So there will be no podcast next week, but after that, I think we'll probably tackle submissions since we did rejections this time and we will tackle submissions next time. So, all right. That is all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about submissions. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.